That is uh, the perfect prayer before a sermon, any sermon, that we, we need the Lord to help us to receive his holy word. That's especially true this morning. Uh, you know, when I, when I agreed to, when I told Nathan I could preach on May 15th, I hadn't looked at what the passage was going to be. And then when I finally did, I thought, I, what, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> this thing we got here. Uh, lawsuits and sexual sin are like, not usually your uh, TED Talk topics, you know? But, man, this passage this morning, guys, is, is so good. It's so good. It's weird. I'm not going to sugarcoat that for you. It's a strange passage for us this morning. But I think what Paul has for us is so transformative. And, uh, man, just the only way I know I say I'm going to have to make up a word, but just reality-fying, like defining of reality for us. The point of the text this morning is not to back us into a corner and accuse us and make us feel really bad about ourselves or throw doubt on our journey with Jesus. There's going to be some heavy stuff, but that's not why the text is here. Because honestly, that doesn't get us anywhere, you know? Nobody's ever been fixed that way or transformed that way. This text reminds us this morning, you know, we're, we're all in the same boat guys, we're all surrounded by a world that does not help us believe Jesus is more real at any point. And honestly, like my own mistakes on the individual level don't help me in that cause either. There's a lot pushing against me believing more into Jesus in this world. There's a lot pushing against you. And we are all in the same boat on that. We need something to jar us out of the, you know, debasing lame, dissatisfying, what Ray Orlin calls unreality of this world. And we need something to take us into the fully satisfying, the beautiful, exciting, and dignifying reality of God. What's real reality? That's what Paul has for us this morning. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is fun stuff this morning, right? <laughs> this, is, this is a good one. At the, uh, at the end of chapter 5, Paul has just started shifting our perspective from holding accountable, you know, those sinners out there to holding accountable these sinners in here. And that's exactly what he's putting into action in chapter 6. Paul's responding to two real-time situations happening in the Corinthian church. But despite what it looks like on the surface, he doesn't do it the way we often would. We would often approach this with a, you need to stop that, here's what you need to do instead attitude. There's a guy named Bob Goff, he's written some books I really like, and Bob has this belief that what people need most and first isn't mainly to be told what to do, but to be told who they are that that's the thing that drives them into the what to do. So that's what Paul is up to in these verses. He gives us these two situations, but right in the middle, he reminds the Corinthians who they are. Now the first situation is in verses one through nine. Apparently we have brothers and sisters suing the quite literal pants off of each other in the Corinthian church. And we're not talking about you know legitimate legal cases here. This is, we joked with the youth this morning, this is more like Jerry Springer style stuff going on here, okay? This is not actual cases that need to be taken to court. And Paul is flabbergasted by this for three reasons he tells us. One, these believers are taking issues before non-believers and asking them to decide what's right. Look back at verse one. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That's unthinkable to Paul, because doing that is like taking a painting to a colorblind man and asking him what colors he sees. Jesus has opened our eyes to the world in full color the way God sees it, and we can't expect 
a, a non-believing world who does not know Jesus, a colorblind world, to see things the right way. Why would we take cases before non-believers and say, judge what's right and wrong when they don't judge things by God's right and wrong? It doesn't make sense to us. And Paul says even more than that, he says, uh, you know, it's actually kind of embarrassing for the church that you're doing this because you're airing out your, your dirty laundry in front of non-believers, right? Nobody goes on Jerry Springer and earns more respect for having gone on there, right? Like, nobody walks away a winner on Jerry Springer, really. You go on there, and you guys watch it, and, you know, you think, you really couldn't have solved this by yourself? And that's where Paul takes us next. He says, this is mind-blowing to me, in verse 2, or do you not know, this is crazy, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Paul says we as Christians are one day going to rule with Christ, the ultimate judge. With him. Guys, look at the people on your right and your left. That person is going to judge the world one day with you. Does that scare you? It should scare you just a little bit. It does me. I'm 29 years old. Here's a confession for you. I'm 29 years old. I own a house. I still struggle with righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. I do, it does not make sense to me. I am almost 30 and I still figure out which way a bolt is supposed to turn by trial and error. I'm just like, it's not going that way. I guess I'll try to swing it that way. And God says, I, with you, am going to judge the world one day. That's a frightening idea to me. I don't know how we're gonna get there. I don't know all of what that means, but Paul is really clear about one thing. If we're going to be presiding over even the angels' cases one day, we've at least got to start figuring out things of way less consequence that we face here and now. But then Paul gets to the heart of it. In verse 7, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? This is so not our culture. We live in a I got to look out for me because nobody else is going to culture. We live in a, you know, the, it's just good business. It's not personal. The ends justify the means. God helps those who help themselves. That's the environment that we live in. We aim for doing what's right, but most of the time we'll settle for what's best for me along the way if it comes down to it. That's where we'll land. Because when it comes down to it, for all our high aspirations, it's either they get what they want or I get what I want, and I need to make sure that I get what I want in this world. Guys, these lawsuits in Corinth weren't really about justice. They definitely weren't about reconciliation. If that's what it was really about, they could have solved this thing with just a few people behind closed doors, clean and easy, and it would have gone easy. But that wasn't it. No one goes on Jerry Springer to get justice, yes? You go on Jerry Springer so that you can be proved right, the other person proved wrong, and you can get whatever you can out of it, whether it's justice or not. That's why you do that kind of thing. And that's what the Corinthians were up to here. That's what Paul gets at. At the end of verse 7, I don't know if you notice this, he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. The church in Corinth 
was divided by arguments between brothers and sisters who went about these situations just like the world around them. And Paul says that is a defeat for them. Hmm. I wonder how Paul can say that. Why is that a, a defeat for them to have legal issues going on? Isn't that just looking for justice? Isn't that fighting for what's right? Paul says it's a feat because he says the way they're doing this and their heart behind it is not living out the gospel, not living out the truth of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Guys, how can the world out there believe in news that we call good if it's not even good enough to change how we do things in here? Why would the world believe in a Jesus who takes on the consequences and sins of other people if we're not even willing to let things go ourselves of way less consequence? How can they believe in a God of compassion and forgiveness when we go about our lives cutthroat and bitter? The power of the gospel is not mainly in, you know, spectacles and miracles and signs and huge crowds of people gathering around to hear somebody speak, that's not where the power of the gospel primarily is. The power of the gospel is in these seemingly insignificant, often overlooked changes in a Christian's life as they start to be aligned with the gospel. Alan Redpath was a really famous British commentator, and he said this, it is a tremendous moment in a Christian's life when he can honestly look up into the face of God and say, yes, Lord, you are right and I am wrong. When he stops arguing with God and drops the controversy, that is the thing for which God has been working in your life and mine from the very moment of our conversion. It's every day over and over saying, Lord, your way is right. Help me live like it. Help me make the gospel believable by the way I do things. And that's where change comes. You know, if you guys want to cause waves for Jesus at your work, put this into action. You want to cause waves, be passed over for the promotion and be joyful in it regardless. You want to cause waves of work, let somebody else take credit for your work and get the glory for it and receive that with grace and be okay with it. If we want to transform the way our families interact with each other to look more like the gospel, we got to be like this. We start, got to start living with this mindset. Let things go. Be patient and willing to bear mistreatment with grace. If we want to be part of a church that looks and feels like the gospel, we got to do more of this. Don't let an argument be the end of the story. Don't hold on to old hurts. Put the unity of the family over getting even. So the Corinthians thought winning, even when you're wrong, was worth tearing apart the family. Paul said losing even when you're right is worth keeping the family together. Because you know, in the end, there's a God setting every record straight. So that's situation number one. We're already in fun territory. The second comes in verses 12 through 20. So last week, Nathan uh, introduced to us a, 
uncomfortable family situation going on, which we don't need to rehash this morning. What's craziest about that family situation is that the Corinthians were actually arrogant, Paul says about it. He says that not only were they okay with this happening in their church, they were bragging to people about it, which is wild to me. I don't know how they could feel that that was that that was right. And I think we find an answer in verses 12 and 13. Your translation, it probably has uh, some quotation marks around some of the words. That's because Paul is quoting the Corinthians back to themselves. He's saying this was their reasoning. Look at verse 12. They say all things are lawful for me. So if Jesus has made everything clean for us, if Jesus has completely forgiven us, if Jesus has set us free, then I can do pretty much whatever I want, right? And Jesus being okay with it should actually make him seem better to other people, right? All things are lawful to me. It makes sense. This is logical where they're going with this. And what's interesting is Paul doesn't argue against that. His response isn't, no, all things are not lawful for you. Look at what he says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He's arguing, let's say you're right. Let's say you're right, and everything is lawful for you. Anything is open to you. That does not mean everything is helpful for you. And what you think is your freedom to do whatever you want is really you being dominated by your desires. You're not actually in control of this thing. You're not living free. Yeah, every year growing up, I went on, uh, in high school, I went on a mission trip to Chicago, okay? We packed in like 70 kids from Middle Tennessee, and we took public transit, and it went about as well as you could possibly imagine that would go, all right? On the L station in Chicago, the train, there is a, a, there's a red line right by the edge of the platform, and that red line is there to tell you, if you come closer than this, you will die. That is how this works, okay? And every year we have to tell the teenagers, do not get close to the line. Don't cross it, don't touch it, don't look at it, don't put an arm out over it, don't think about it, stay away from the line. What do you think they did? They went right to the line every single time. Like they couldn't even help it. They were just drawn to this line. And they thought it was hilarious. They thought this was the best thing ever. And if you said something, they'd be like, I'm standing behind the line. Look, oh, now I'm not. Oh, now I am. And you couldn't do anything about it. They thought it was funny. And I, the more you think about it, the sillier that is. This line is literally there to tell you, here is the least requirement to stay alive on this platform. And their thought was, I want to get as close to that as possible for no particular reason. It's just what they were led to do. That's what the Corinthians were really up to here. That's what we're up to a lot more often than we admit. We're not really talking about freedom in Christ a lot of the time. More often, the question we're really asking is, how can I straddle the line between being a follower of Jesus and experiencing everything the world has to offer me? We want to know how close and how far over I can stand on that line. You know, these days, we, we talk about it often like finding balance. 
We want to find balance in all the different compartments of our lives. We want to give equal attention to our family and our work and our friends and our hobbies and our faith. And listen, I feel that too. I, I want to have balance in my life. I try to juggle all the plates as best I can. And we are surrounded by a whole atmosphere of voices telling us what's most important, what you need to balance. It's disorienting, and we have a constant anxiety of missing out on the good thing, the thing that we cannot miss. We have an anxiety that we're going to slip past that, and we're not going to work that in. So we're told to aim for balance between us, as, between as many things as we can. The Corinthians put it like this. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, which is a smart-sounding way of saying, do what feels right. Do everything that feels right to you. Straddle the line, and God will take care of the rest. You just find the balance that feels right. Friends, the problem with that is there is no balance in the gospel. That's not a thing for Christians. God has something so much better than balance in mind for us. Look at verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's a negative. We don't like that. Don't tell me what not to do. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That should be a, a mind-bending reality for us. Guys, your body, your whole body is meant for the Lord. There's nothing left for you to use for yourself anymore. It all belongs to God, and he's using it to showcase his power and his glory. There's no hint of balance in that. There's no straddling a line in that. It all belongs to the Lord. And I, God wants to use your body for his glory. And I don't know about you, there's a, there's a lot I would change about my body if I could. It's probably true for a lot of you guys too, right? But God looks at us and goes, mm, yeah, I can work with that actually that I can do something with. Our world says we have a body for our enjoyment, so we can do what feels good. And you know, that sounds great at first, but that's as far as it goes. It's just enjoyment. And then it ends there, and we're left looking for something more than that, repeatedly. And so we fill the void again and again with what feels good, and then we're left again with the void over and over and over again. It's an empty way to live. If everything the world has to offer me, if the best I can hope for is to get as much pleasure as possible in this world and then die, what a lame way to live. <laughs> that does not sound like the choice I want with my life. God gives us way more dignity than that. He wants to use your body to make the world see how incredible he is. He puts eternal worth into your body. He makes you part of his spiritual body. He doesn't leave you to be a junkie addicted to the next good feeling thing over and over again, whatever the moment tells you. God does not treat us that way. He has more dignity in store for us than that. He sets you free and he gives you something higher to aim for than that. The question is not where the line of freedom is where the edge of that freedom ends. The question is, what is closest to the heart of Jesus Christ? That's our question now. 
And this is a radical shift for us. I know it is. It's a constant radical shift. We have been living in you know, two dimensions our entire life. Everything happens on this plane. And then Jesus comes along, sticks another dimension right in the middle of that and says, actually, we're living in three now. And that's disorienting. We got to figure out how do I operate in this new reality? Because there's, there's a whole other thing to consider now. We live as if the consequences for our choices with our body only affect us and maybe a few people around us. And Jesus says, actually, everything you do is done in unity with Christ. Right? That's what Paul is trying to get across in verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? <laughs> this is, I know this is rough, but shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. I want you to keep in mind, body and flesh are said there. And then he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There's a shift. It's deeper. It's more internal. It's more fundamental. What is Paul doing here? Paul is getting the Corinthians to stop thinking about finding where the line is and start thinking about where Christ is. He could have easily said, hey, don't spend your nights on the corner, guys. That's just don't do that. That should be a no-brainer, but I'm going to have to tell you, don't do that. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, would you ever think of linking Christ to this kind of reputation? He turns the question on them, and guys, I know the answer for all of us is no. I would never willingly link Christ to that kind of reputation. If you put it in those terms for me, I know what choice I would make every time. The problem is, we've been in two dimensions, and Paul is trying to get us to see how this consequence, the ripple effect of our actions, go beyond us and into Christ's name, into Christ's body. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. But you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body is part of Christ's body now. Everything you and I do is done in unity with Jesus. You are not making decisions just for yourself anymore. You're making decisions for the body of Christ. And we might be okay with giving, you know, the bare minimum to ourselves, all right, I might be fine with eating peanut butter and jelly every night of my life when I'm at my house by myself. But if I invite friends over, you better believe I'm gonna give them the best that I have to offer them, right? And I think all of you would do that too. If I walked into someone's house and they served me PB&J, I'd probably be fine with it. But in the back of my mind, I'd be thinking, wow, you really, really pulled out all the stops for this one, didn't you? Right? We give our best when we're doing it for somebody else. That's how Paul wants us to start living. You don't have to be told where the line is in that situation. You just give it everything you have. And Paul says that's what it looks like to live for Christ. Not for yourself, but for Christ. So give it all you have. Guys, we cannot make peace with our little pet sins. We can't be okay with the bare minimum. We can't be okay with living a life that's like one foot on the gospel and one foot in the world. 
We can't be okay with settling for anything less than everything God has for us and deserves of us, which is fortunate for us in the end, guys. This is for our benefit. And if you don't have the strength to make that change for yourself, if you don't have the heart, if you aren't even sure you're worth that much, you're in good company. And let Paul remind you of one last thing. This is the big reality. As mine, everything Paul has said so far, this is how Paul can say, let yourself be defrauded. This is how Paul can say, live for something bigger than your own pleasure. 1 Corinthians 6 exists because this is true. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's true the Corinthians had gone way off base. It's true we get a little off base too. But Paul's whole goal in this chapter is to remind the Corinthians what reality actually is. Despite all the noise around us, despite every voice telling us otherwise, he's trying to tell us, here's what is really true. Corinthians have been fundamentally changed by the gospel. Are they messy still? You bet. But God says they were washed. Still struggling with sin? Yes, clearly. But God says they were sanctified. Are they still feeling accused in their hearts? Of course they are, but God says they were justified. I, I know we don't have time to go through the Greek in here, but I want you to know that every one of these words describing them is written in a way to communicate this is an event that is done and it has leaked back into the past to change how we view that, and it is leaking forward into the future to change what's up there. This is an event that happened, it is decided, and it is changing everything about you. These words are true of the Corinthians no matter what. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, they are true of you too, no matter what. What Paul is asking us to do this morning is to live like the people God already says we are. That's what he's asking us to do. If we've gotten off track, that's fine. We can own up to it. Let's do that this morning. Let's do that right now and get humble with God. And let's decide that we're realigning with his reality. Let's let the gospel form every bit of our lives until it works its way down all the way to what we even believe about ourselves. So we don't say, this is what I say about me, but we say, this is what God says about me, and that is what matters. And if you're wondering where to start, this is one of the most practical passages out there, okay? Because it is so to the point. Paul gives us clarity on where to start. If we are holding resentment towards someone, do we have bitterness in our hearts over disagreements and hurts that we just can't seem to let go? Have we been worried about being right more than we have worried about being together? Have we been the ones defrauding our brothers and sisters of friendship? of grace, of forgiveness? Or are we tangled up so deep in a cycle of sin we aren't sure we'll ever get out? Have we been hiding our struggles in private, hoping to manage them even as they got out of control? Are there past wounds of things we've done and things that have been done to us? 
that have left gaping holes and we aren't even sure Jesus can heal them. If any of those things ring true with us this morning, then we start by looking at the gospel. We start by looking at words Paul has spoken over us and we say, all right, God, I'm in. Whatever I have to do, whatever I have to change, I'm in. I want to do things your way. So we go in the argument. Go give forgiveness. Go ask for grace. Go throw a light on your struggles to someone. Go take the risk of letting someone else see your weaknesses and wounds. It's funny to me that we as Christians enter this thing admitting we're sinners and then we spend our whole lives trying to pretend that we're not anymore. It makes no sense, friends. We're free to live like the people Jesus says we are and be honest about what's the space between those two realities. So this morning we decide what we'll do with that. And that's when God gets to work. Let me pray for us. Father, your gospel is the bigger reality. Bigger than us. Bigger than what we think. Bigger than what our world says. Bigger than what we believe. There is reality behind that. I pray for my friends here at Woodmont that they would press in to what you say is true and they would find you faithful to work in that. We ask this in Jesus' name.